Melkam Fasika. It is uh, good to be here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And we celebrate that each and every Sunday. That's why we worship on Sundays. But today is unique. Today there's a unique emphasis on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today what we're going to do, we're going to be looking at the resurrection story from Mark's gospel. Now Mark is actually the shortest of the gospels, and it's also the shortest resurrection account within the gospel. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, but get this, we're going to go a lot of different places in Scripture. We're going to see a few different things. So you uh, take notes, encourage you if you get lost at some point. Uh, the Scripture should be on the screen behind me so you can look there. But if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's good, holy, and perfect Word. Mark chapter 16 verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of our Lord. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word, your word, stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken here today, so speak, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we pick up in our passage today, and we see a group of women, and I love that it's a group of women going to the tomb of Jesus. You know, we often think of the 12 disciples, these 12 male followers. Jesus had many women who faithfully followed him and supported his ministry. And Jesus is always elevating women, especially in the ancient world where that often wasn't the case. And they are going on a mission. You see, Jesus died on Passover, a Jewish holy day, a Jewish holiday, and it's no accident that he died on Passover. He's the fulfillment of all that Passover points to. But when Passover was about over, the Sabbath starts. 
And the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, starts at sundown on Friday. The Sabbath day is Saturday, but their day started at sundown. So they've got to get Jesus off the cross and into the tomb before sun is down. So they hastily put his body in the tomb. But what you would do in the ancient world is you would put somebody in a tomb, you would anoint their body with spices and oils, and their body would be there for about a year. It would rot and decay, and then you would come and take the bones and put the bones in what's called an ossuary box. So these women, they couldn't go to Jesus' body on Saturday because it's Sabbath. So at the very first opportunity they get, these women who love Jesus, they're going to anoint and take care of his body. That's what they're going for. And as they head there, it says that they head there on the first day of the week. Now that's significant for us. It shouldn't be lost on us. In the Bible, they don't name the days of the week. They're simply called the first day, second day, sixth day, the seventh day. Well, know this, church. We do not gather on the sixth day when Jesus died on the cross. We don't gather every Friday to remember Good Friday. We don't gather on Saturday to remember the day that he was in the tomb and to remember the day that God rested. No, we gather every Sunday because he rose victoriously and these women are going on the first day of the week to see the body of Jesus. Yet they've got a concern. How are we going to roll that big stone away? What are we going to do about it? You see, something happened that these women didn't know about. The day before, the religious leaders went to the Romans and said, we've heard that he's going to rise again. That's what he's saying. And they're going to take his body, steal it, and hide it, and say he's risen, and it'll be a big problem. So the Romans take the tomb, and they seal it with straps, and they would have put a Roman seal upon it. And if you break a Roman seal, it's punishable by death. The women didn't know that was on there. But they also didn't know what they were about to experience. They come to the tomb, and the tomb, the stone's been rolled away. And let me tell you, the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could walk out. Oh, Jesus could get out of that tomb any way he wanted to. Jesus, in his resurrected body, he would just appear in rooms. He would just show up. No, the stone wasn't rolled away for Jesus. It was rolled away for the women and for his disciples and for you and I so they could come and look inside and say, his body's not there. They see an angel. We're told in other Gospels there's two angels. And they say these words. These words that in many ways are the pinnacle of all of Scripture. These words that all of Scripture points us to. They say, He has risen. He's not here. That's what they've been waiting for. He's risen. And it's glorious, marvelous, Wonderful good news. This week at our house, we've uh, each morning gathered around our table for breakfast and we've talked about what happened each day of the week, Holy Week. Well, a few days ago, we were sitting eating and I asked the boys a question. I said, Did Jesus have to die? Well, for the most part, the answer was pretty unanimous. Yes, he, he had to go die for our sins, he had to pay the price for our sin. Could he have done it another way? No, this is the way that God designed. It's the only way our sin could be dealt with. But then I ask him another question. Did Jesus, did he have to rise? 
Now that one we got a little bit different answers for. Well, he, he had already gone to the cross. He had already paid the price for the uh, sin. Isn't that enough? Did he have to rise? Did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Church, let me tell you. Jesus Christ most gloriously had to rise from the dead. And it is good, glorious, wonderful news. And today, I've always heard it said that you want the main point of a sermon to be the main point of the passage. And the main point of our passage today is the main point of the entirety of this book. It's the main point of the entirety of human history that Jesus Christ rose. So today, I just want us to examine that question a little. And to look, and I just want to show you from Scripture that God had a pattern of death and resurrection and that Jesus had to rise. Now what I'm not going to do today is an apologetic for the empty tomb. If, if that's something you're curious about, and by apologetic I mean a defense, like, was the tomb really empty? Is that like historically accurate? Can we stand on it? You know, some say that Jesus just swooned, meaning like, he appeared they put him in the tomb, but then he came back. He wasn't dead. Well, Jesus was beaten by professional executioners to the point of death. And certainly, he wouldn't come back out and say, I've risen and victoriously. No, his body would have been destroyed and beaten. Some say the disciples stole the body. Well, do you realize that every one of the disciples, with the exception of John, died because they said Jesus rose from the dead. These guys, for 40 years, they went around the world declaring Jesus rose from the dead, and when they were about to be killed in horrific ways, all they had to do was say, we made it up, it's a lie. Not a single one of them did. You see, no one will die for what they know is a lie. Now, these guys went to their grave declaring that Jesus rose, that the tomb was empty. If, if that's something you want to explore, I'm happy. Email me. I'm happy to send you resources to help you explore that. But that's not what we're going to focus on today. Today, we want to focus on the biblical pattern that we see that Jesus had to rise, that this is where our hope is found. In Scripture, we'll see Jesus called a lot of names. Christ, Messiah. Lord, King of kings, Rabbi, Light of the world, Son of God, Son of man, Son of David, First Adam, I mean Second Adam, Last Adam. But perhaps my favorite title for Jesus is Lamb of God. It's rich. See, it's unique. And the Jewish they, they loved describe God differently than we do where I come from in the West. If I ask a, a group of Westerners to describe God, they're going to say powerful, holy, righteous, just, pure. You ask a Jewish person in Scripture to describe God, and they're going to say he's our fortress. He's a strong tower. He's like shade. They're going to describe God in those terms, and Lamb of God brings a visual when we hear Lamb of God, we think of something. For a Jewish person, certain thoughts came to mind that may not come to our mind, but I want us to see those today. And they certainly could see lambs, touch them, smell them, experience them. And for you, you've seen sheep. 
One of the things I love about Ethiopia, I love driving and seeing the streets full of life. You see, where, where I come from, the, there's hardly anybody out. The streets are filled with people. They're filled with donkeys. They're filled with sheep and goats. In fact, every day when I drive here selling fial and beg, you're getting all my mark words today. They're not many. I'm selling sheep and goat just right here. And every day as I pass that, I'm reminded of the truth of God's word. In fact, uh, I remember a few years ago, I noticed what I thought was a goat. And I said to a friend, I said, look, look, there's a goat going down the street. And he said, that's not a goat. That's a sheep. And I said, well, how do you know the difference? Because I can't tell. He said, well, it's quite easy. Sheep, their tail points upward. Because a sheep is proud. A sheep is arrogant. A sheep thinks they can figure out and do everything themselves. They don't need any help. A sheep's full of themselves. That's actually a goat. <laughs> I said it wrong. A sheep, though. Their tail points down. Goat's tail points up, sheep's tail points down. And that sheep's tail pointing down, he's humble. He's lowly. He knows he needs a good shepherd to guide and direct him. And I thought, how biblical. Jesus says there's a day coming where he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and that's what we're called. He's not talking about literal sheep and goats. He's talking about humans. And for every human, when God compares us to animals, he's either saying you're like a sheep or you're like a goat. Jesus, he comes as the Lamb of God. And it's a powerful image. And we have to go back to Genesis to see why this image is so powerful. In Genesis 2.17, God tells Adam, You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly emphatically die. In the Hebrew, that word for death there in Genesis 2.17 is complete death, spiritual death, emotional death, total separation from God. You are dead when you eat of that tree. Yet we know the story. Adam and Eve eat of the tree and they should have died when they took their first bite. As soon as they ate of it, they should have dropped dead, but they didn't die right then. Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin with their own works. They put fig leaves over their bodies. But God, in His great, glorious mercy, He comes and takes care of it Himself. In Genesis 3, 21, we're told, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. God himself took the initiative and God himself clothed Adam and Eve, covering their sin. And Adam and Eve learned something. Our God is gracious. Our God is merciful. We should have died, but we get to live. We get to rise and live when we should have died. But our, our life is not cheap. Something had to die in our place. And they wore these bloody animal skins. God killed an animal in place of Adam and Eve. God says, my justice, my wrath upon your sin will be appeased temporarily as you wear these bloody animal outfits. And we're told in Scripture 
1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, In Adam, all die. In Romans 5, 12, it says, Sin came to all through one man. So get this, when Adam sinned, you and I sinned. We all are born in sin, and the first opportunity that you have to actualize sin, you do. And our sin deserves death. You and I, that's what we deserve. Eternal separation from God through death, yet God is merciful. Adam and Eve, you get to rise from the dead and live because this animal died in your place. Well, later, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 22, Abraham, the father of the nations, walking up this mountain called Moriah, Mount Moriah, it's where later they would build the temple for sacrifice. It's where later the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be crucified on the far side of Mount Moriah. And here comes Abraham, the father of the nation, with his grown son Isaac, taking him up the mountain. And in Genesis 22:7, we get the question of the Old Testament. This is the question that the Old Testament echoes and asks over and over again. When Isaac says to his father, he says, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the offering? We got a problem. Where's our offering? Because we know that our sin requires death in its place. And Abraham beautifully and rightly answers his son, God himself will provide. And that's always been the story. God himself. You and I can't take care of our sin problem. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. You need God to come to the rescue and to take care of the issue. And as Abraham takes the knife and he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, God pauses it. Isaac is insufficient. Isaac's rejected. He's not a perfect sacrifice. He's not a sinless lamb. No, he's an insufficient sacrifice. And he looks over and sees a ram, a male lamb caught in the thicket. And the lamb dies in the place of Isaac. He Isaac from the dead. He was as good as dead, yet he gets to live and walk down the mountain. He rose because the lamb died in his place. In the book of Exodus, we see the most vivid of the Jewish holy days. It's called Passover. This is why Jesus died at Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, he tells every family, there's going to come a plague and the firstborn sons will die. And what you've got to do is something that sounds quite crazy. Take a lamb, bring him into your house for five days, and you inspect that lamb. You make sure he's perfect. Your children will be hugging the lamb. Your family's going to get attached to that lamb. And on the fifth day, you're going to take that lamb and you're going to kill the lamb. And you're going to paint in faith blood over the door. And God will pass over every single household that has the blood of the lamb covering the door. You see, the family was not saved because they were religious. God didn't spare the firstborn because the people were so good. The sparing of the firstborn had nothing to do with the people in the house. It had everything to do with the blood on the door. They trusted the blood of the lamb. 
and they lived. You see, the next morning when they woke up, there was moaning and wailing throughout Egypt as all the firstborn sons died. But if you were covered by the blood of the Lamb, the next morning, your son rose. He got up. He lived. And that is good, glorious news. We see this picture throughout in the book of Leviticus. We see a peace offering of a lamb to make peace between us and God. A sin offering of a lamb to cover our sin. And what we learn throughout the Old Testament is the lamb is sacrificed for one man, Isaac. The lamb is sacrificed for the family in the book of Exodus. The lamb is sacrificed for the nation in the book of Leviticus. In Exodus, it's sacrificed for the family. And when we come to the New Testament, the very first words you hear out of Jesus' forerunner, a man named John the Baptist, in John 1.29, the first words he says, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Lamb, He's sufficient not just for one man, not just for a family, not just for one nation. No, He is sufficient for the entire world. His sacrifice is effective for all who will believe. The Lamb of God. Behold, that's the instruction. Oh, church, that's a glorious verse. Behold, take hold of the Lamb of God. Don't ever let go of the Lamb of God. Keep returning to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Gaze at Him. Ponder Him. Process Him. Love Him. You see, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. So much about His life points to that. For a Jew, when they heard that, they go, the Lamb of God. Every year we sacrifice lambs for Passover. Every year we sacrifice lambs for peace offerings and, and for sin offerings. Here's the Lamb of God we've been waiting for. This is glorious news. He's sufficient for the world. And Jesus was born in a small sheep village called Bethlehem. You see, Bethlehem, during Jesus' day, all the fields around Bethlehem were owned by a religious group called the Sadducees. They were a small group of religious leaders, and they had complete control of the temple. The Pharisees were a bigger group. The Sadducees were smaller, but they controlled the temple. And they owned all the fields around Bethlehem, and they had made a rule that said, if you're going to sacrifice a sheep at Passover, it has to be born within a certain distance of the temple. Well, Bethlehem's only like five or six kilometers from the temple. It's this little sheep village. And they owned all the fields of Bethlehem. And what are these sheep being raised for? They're being raised to be sold at the temple, to be sacrificed at Passover. You see, each year at Passover, during Jesus' time, they would sacrifice 250,000 sheep. The city was a bloody mess. The Kidron Valley ran with blood as they sacrificed these sheep. And here Jesus is, born amongst the sheep for sacrifice. And here Jesus is, born in a stable where sheep were raised. Placed where sheep ate. His first visitors were shepherds. He was born for the sins of the world laid here. 
And you see, during Jesus' time, Jerusalem, during Passover, every Jewish person, faithful Jewish person, was required to come for Passover. And the city, numbers vary, but some estimate about 200,000 people lived in Jerusalem. It would swell to about 2 million people. So God's brought the entire world, all the Jewish people from all over the world, to come to Jerusalem to see the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. So the city is packed with people. All the nations are there. And Jesus came to live as a sheep. He's called the Good Shepherd, but he's a good shepherd who became a sheep. You see, you and I are sheep. If we're a follower of his, we're called sheep. And sheep, they're an interesting animal. They're known as one of the least intelligent animals on earth. They're known as a stupid animal. I don't know how they figure that out, but I think when you're that clueless, people figure out this animal's not very bright. Sheep, the shepherd has to show them where water is. Shepherd has to show them where food is. The shepherd has to guide and direct sheep. Sheep have no natural defenses, meaning most animals have sharp claws. So if you come at that animal, my cat will scratch you. Most animals have sharp teeth. They can bite you. Most animals can run faster than you. A sheep is slow, they have dull teeth, and they have no claws. They have no hope against a predator trying to destroy them. When a wolf comes and tries to get a sheep, a sheep is easy prey. A, shepherd, a sheep needs a shepherd to protect them from the wolves that will come and try to destroy them. There's really only one thing a sheep does well, and that's follow. That's the only thing a sheep does well is follow. In fact, in Turkey in 2005, one sheep walked off a cliff. You can Google this. This, is, this, is, this happened. One sheep walked off a cliff and 1,100 other sheep followed that one sheep off a cliff. 400 of them died. After a while, I think there was enough padding that the others survived. They will follow a leader right to their destruction. So for a sheep, it's important. Who are they following? You see, we're called sheep. Many of us may think of ourselves as leaders, independent thinkers, but the reality is, is we are all following someone. We are designed to follow. God's made us to follow. We long to follow. Yet when we follow the ways of this world, we'll go right off the cliff to death and destruction and eternal separation from God. We need a good shepherd to come to the rescue. We need a good shepherd to come and take his shepherd's crook and pull us back from destruction, to pull us back from death. And brother and sister, you may think you have defenses. You may think you can stand against sin. But let me tell you, you are defenseless against sin. It will deceive you. It will trick you. It will destroy you. It will make you think something different of yourself. Your only hope against sin is the shepherd to defend and protect you. You need the good shepherd. Sin wants to destroy. You see, sometimes a sheep will roam off. It's rare because they follow. But sometimes you'll get a sheep that decides he's going his own way and going to do his own thing. And what a shepherd will do is he'll take that sheep, I think I've got a picture of it, and he'll break the sheep's leg on purpose. And then he'll throw that sheep on his shoulders 
And for the next four to six weeks, that sheep will be on his shoulders. And during that time, his leg heals, but he also learns to hear the voice of the shepherd. And when that sheep's put back down, he never roams from the shepherd again. He's learned the goodness, the graciousness, the kindness of his shepherd. And sometimes that's us. You see, we keep roaming. We keep going our own direction. We keep thinking we know better than God. And sometimes God will take us and say, you're not listening. You're the sheep that keeps roaming off. And there's going to be some pain and suffering in your life that's going to bring you to cling to me. Where you'll learn to hear my voice. You see, in the midst of the pain and suffering, God wants you to draw near to him and learn to hear his voice as you walk through that. And Jesus is called the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd, yet he became a sheep for us. Jesus is God Almighty, yet he put on flesh and became a man for us. Jesus says in John uh, 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You see, shepherds are mentioned more than 100 times in the Bible. In fact, when God wants to prepare somebody for something significant in the Bible, they become a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. King David was a shepherd. In fact, I've wondered if we should have pastors go be a shepherd and work with sheep before they go to seminary. Because sheep keep roaming. And compared to God, sheep appear quite foolish. I was in Israel and took a picture of some sheep there. The sheep in Israel look a little different than the sheep here. I think I've got a picture of them here. They're sort of nasty, dirty, stinky animals. And not to try to make you feel bad, but the reality is that's who we are. Compared to God's holiness and His righteousness and His justice, we are filthy, we are sinful, we are broken. We look like these sheep. And yet the good shepherd comes and gives himself for the sheep. You see, the sheep go low. They humble themselves. That's why Jesus gives this picture. His people are sheep. Those who aren't his are goats. They think they know better. You know, the last week of Jesus' life, he comes into the temple area on Monday of that week. And what's happening in the temple area is they're buying and selling sheep because you might show up from there. Let's say you've come way away from uh, Philippi or some other city in Galatia and you've brought your sheep. And when you show up, they'll say your sheep's not spotless. But guess what? You can buy a pre-approved sheep. We've got sheep here for sale that are spotless. But you've got to change your money first because you've got money from Galatia. And you've got to change the temple money. And then you can buy this sheep at a higher price. And they sold and killed 250,000 sheep. If you look at the temple, this is a picture of a, of a model of the temple in Jerusalem. You can see the largest area is called the court of the Gentiles. It was where the nations would come together to hear about God. You want to know who God is? You come and gather at the court of the Gentiles. It was 25 football fields in size. Yet in Jesus' day, when he came there, guess what they were doing? Buying and selling. 
And Jesus comes into that area, and we're told in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, he says, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. You see, the temple wasn't just for the Jewish person. It was for all nations, but the nations couldn't see God because the Sadducees and religious leaders were just buying and selling sheep. So Jesus comes, and in the one act of physical rage we see in Jesus, righteous rage, holy rage, he overturns the temples, uh, the tables, and he essentially ends the sacrifice of sheep because it's not needed anymore. He will be the final sheep to die. He will be the Lamb of God dying. There will be no more reason for lambs to die. In fact, you go to Israel today, they're not sacrificing sheep. It's done. Jesus is the final sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world, and he died at Passover. Right as they were killing the sheep that Friday, there since the Lamb of God on the far side of Mount Moriah, hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world. His sacrifice was sufficient for all the world. On the cross, Jesus took the hell that you and I deserve upon himself for three hours. He took the wrath of God that you and I should have gotten for all eternity. That's why the night before he said, take this cup from me. It wasn't so much that he was going to be physically beaten. I know he didn't look forward to that. But it was that he was going to take the wrath of God the Father for the sins of all the world upon him. And he'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've taken the sin of the world upon me. And he died and was put in a tomb. And on another Jewish holiday, you see, the first day of the week after Passover is called First Fruits. It's a Jewish holy day when they celebrate the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest. And Jesus rises on the first fruits of the harvest because he's the first fruits of salvation. That's what we're told in First uh, Corinthians 20. His rising guarantees that all who follow and trust him will rise too. You see, without the resurrection, we don't know. Did it take? Did he pay the price for sin? Is sin defeated? You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 says, the last enemy. Here's the final enemy, it's death. And on the cross, Jesus defeated death. And when he returns, he'll claim the final victory over death, and death will be no more. But that's where we're all headed. We're all going to die. Our bodies are decaying and falling apart. We're not getting better. We can eat right and exercise to slow it down, and that's good and fine. But I'll tell you, at the end of the day, we're all headed toward death. But the hope, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection gives us hope that we will rise too. We will rise to newness of life and live with him for all eternity. And Jesus gives a picture of the end times last week of his life in Matthew 25, he's speaking to his followers. And listen to what he tells them. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's talking about his return, and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations 
will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. He's not talking about literal sheep. He's not talking about literal goats here. He's talking about all the nations, all the people from all times are going to gather before him. And the sheep, those who were humble and said, I need the good shepherd. I'm hopeless. I can't navigate my way in this life. I need to follow the good shepherd. I need to trust him. I need him to protect me. I need him to lead me away from temptation. I need him to guide me. I trust in the good shepherd for salvation. But the goats, they said things like, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as everybody else. I'm okay. Denying that they're sinful and broken. A goat says, I'm, I'm fairly religious. I come to church regularly. A goat says, my family was Christian. They're good people. But at the end of the day, the goat's tail is sticking right up. And he's saying, I am enough. I can do it. I'm good enough. I can figure out this life on my own. I can figure out this world on my own. I'm okay. I'm self-sufficient. Until that goat lowers his tail and is broken and humbles himself, that goat will be separated from God from all eternity. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the great privilege during this day and time of getting to go to the goats. This is the only time we have the opportunity to do that. Those who don't know the Lord. And when you go, you may have to die yourself. Jesus died so that you could live and rise. We die so that others can live and rise. You may have to tell somebody about the gospel and share it with them, and it may mean that you're dying to your own reputation. You may serve somebody in the name of Jesus, and it may be a death for you. You see, but the gospel has always advanced through death. We die to ourselves and live for the Lord. And we have the great opportunity of having access to those who don't know the Lord. And I'm not so naive as to think that there's some of those in here today who don't know the Lord. We're glad you're here. You're welcome. You're in the right spot. Maybe you think your religious works are enough. Maybe you think your religious practices or your good works or whatever it is, you think you're okay. Let me tell you, you're a sinner who from your first breath headed straight towards sin. You've rebelled against a holy God and you have no hope except in Jesus. And I implore you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to trust in Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else to go. And for the Christian, when we become a Christian, the most glorious thing God could do was bring us home immediately. But he leaves you and I here. Why does he leave us here? Because we got work to do. He wants to use us for his glory. He wants to use us to declare the good news, but we can only do that as we continually die to self and live for him. The book of Revelation speaks of where we're headed. And of all the books in the Bible, it speaks of Jesus as the Lamb of God more than any other. This powerful image of him being the Lamb of God who had to die and had to rise. Listen to Revelation. There's many places I could go. 
But I'm going to read from Revelation 5, verse 11 through 14. It says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also the living creatures and elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And they all bowed down and worshiped him. This is our reality. As we come to worship as a body, as a church today, one day we're going to worship like this, the Lamb of God. And we'll celebrate. And in this time we get to declare the gospel gloriously and beautifully. But I pray that we'll live for this day. I pray that we'll live for the Lamb. I pray that we'll live for His glory. And I pray that as we walk out of here, we know that he has risen. He has risen indeed. This whole book was meant to point us to the fact that he rose from the dead so that you too, even as you encounter difficulties, will rise and live with Jesus for all eternity. Let's pray. God, you are gracious and you are good and your word is true. And Lord, I know in this room there are those who don't know you. Lord, maybe they're thinking they're okay. Maybe they don't know if they really believe in God. Maybe they're wondering if you're real. Maybe they're questioning things about Scripture. Can it be relied upon? Maybe they're thinking, if there is a God, I'm surely good enough that that God would be okay with me. Lord, I pray that you'd awaken them to their sin and you'd awaken them to your grace. And you'd waken them to the Lamb of God who's been sacrificed for them. And Lord, for those here who've trusted you, to the sheep here today, keep us from roaming and being arrogant, thinking we're better. Keep us humble and low. Keep us trusting and following you. Lord, we know there's seasons where you have to break our love so that we learn to hear your voice better. Lord, in those seasons, may we draw near to you. And Lord, may we experience a life where we are continually walking in light of our resurrection. We will rise again. We will rise. And we celebrate that. We praise you for all this. We praise you that we can gather as a church to worship the risen Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.